When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and recommend. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. If you love to read, please consider joining my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month, one where I talk about the next month's most anticipated books and one where I chat with an independent bookseller, all about their store and the books that they recommend. In addition, I host a monthly early read where members have advanced access via NetGalley to a digital copy of a book, and then we meet on Zoom with the author pre-publication to chat about that book. January's book is The Sweet Spot by Amy Popel, and for February there are two. Lauren Willig's new book, Two Wars and a Wedding, and a debut by Lee Abramson called A Likely Story. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Ellie Griffiths about Bleeding Heart Yard. Ellie is the author of the Ruth Galloway and Magic Men mystery series, as well as a standalone novel, The Stranger Diaries, which was the winner of the Edgar Award for Best Novel, and The Postscript Murders. She is a recipient of the CWA Dagger in the Library Award, and the Mary Higgins Clark Award. She lives in Brighton, England. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome, Ellie. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. Very happy to be here. I'm in a very windy and rainy Brighton, UK. Well, it's very rainy here in Houston as well, so I guess maybe it's just one of those days. Yes, very typical November day. Is it All Saints Day, though, which is quite nice. It is All Saints Day. My daughter reminded me about that this morning, so that that is quite nice, yeah. Well, I'm so excited to chat with you because I have read your Ruth Galloway series since the beginning, and I love these standalones, and so I'm just so excited to have a conversation with you about everything. 
I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for supporting the books right from the beginning. I, I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm always looking for something that's a little different that aren't just the standard fare that you see. And I love that Ruth is an archaeologist. She's solving different mysteries than you ordinarily see. And I think that's fabulous. Oh, thank you. I, I must admit, I did think when I had the idea for the book, I've got to write it because otherwise somebody else will write a book about, you know, a forensic archaeologist because it did seem a good idea. And I know there have been anthropologists, obviously, Temperance Brennan book, she's an anthropologist. It's a little bit different. And my husband, Andy, had just uh, retrained as an archaeologist. So I thought, I've got to do it now while he's still keen enough to give me all this information. Exactly. Because I also find that things like that, those ideas seem to bubble up at the same time, you know, independently, but they bubble up. So you're right. It was good to get it on out there before someone else did. Isn't that funny, though? It does happen, doesn't it? And I'm sure as a bookseller, you see it. I remember I wrote a book, which one was it? Dying Fall, A Dying Fall, that had the Pendle Witches in. I thought, oh, this is such a, you know, that's such an obscure thing, the Pendle Witches. No one's going to write about them. And that same year, Jeanette Winterson brought out a book about the Pendle Witches. I mean, you know, it's, it's something a bit spooky in the ether sometimes, isn't it? I think that's exactly right. And so today you're here to talk with me about a different book, Bleeding Heart Yard, which I loved as well. And it was so clever. And I really got to the end not sure where it was going, which oh, is good. the best <laughs> kind of mystery. Yes. <laughs> so before we dive in, why don't you give me a quick synopsis of Bleeding Heart Yard for those that won't have read it yet? Okay, well, Bleeding Heart Yard is set in London. And in fact, Bleeding Heart Yard is a real place in London. And Harbinder Kaur, who is the detective who's appeared in The Stranger Diaries and The Postscript Murders, has been promoted and moved to London. And her first case is a very high-profile case of a Conservative MP who's found dead at his school reunion. And so uh, it's, it's Harbinder's first case, but luckily, one of her sergeants was actually at school with a dead man, so it can give her lots of inside information. But after a while, she wonders whether the sergeant really knows too much inside information, and whether there is a link to a sinister dining club that meets in Bleeding Heart Yard. First of all, I love the name Bleeding Heart Yard, and I was so curious when I first started reading exactly what the title meant, but as you mentioned, it is actually a place which is in the book, and I wasn't familiar with that. It's, isn't it a wonderful place name, I have to say, and this happened quite a few years ago. I actually went out to uh, lunch with some of my old colleagues from publishing because I used to work at HarperCollins in the UK as an editor. And we always try and meet up every year. The, the chap who always organises them, a friend of mine called Paul, always tries to find someone with a nice name. So he had, had picked this restaurant that was called Bleeding Heart Bistro and it was in Bleeding Heart Yard. And I thought, wow, I've got to set a book here. And there's actually quite a sinister little story link to the yard. It's a little courtyard it's near, it's in Hoburn in London. For those of you who know London, it's near um, London Bridge Station. It's actually mentioned in Little Dorrit by um, Charles Dickens. But there is a legend uh, in the 1700s of, of a society lady called Lady Elizabeth Hatton, who was found dead in the courtyard with her heart lying beside her, still pumping blood, which is a very, very gruesome legend. And some people say that she, at a ball the night before, she'd either met the Spanish ambassador who'd killed her or she'd met the devil himself. <laughs> and I know I was like, oh, when I was reading that part, I was like, maybe I won't visit Bleeding Heart Yard. <laughs> Actually, you know, in daylight anyhow, it's, it's a very pleasant place. And I do recommend the restaurant. What a funny name for a restaurant, Bleeding Heart Bistro. And it's funny is that London has a lot of these strange names. I think I more than kind of American cities, American cities, I think tend to have, you know, quite sort of 
sort of standard names, like most towns have, have a main street and it's all quite logical. In London, for example, there, there's a place called Crutched Friars Lane and um, Bleeding Heart Yard is another one. They've all got these quite wonderful names, which sort of hint at history below London. Of course, London was a Roman city and before then it was a, a Bronze Age um, area. So there's so many layers of history in London. So I think that all adds to it. even Threadneedle Street, which is where all the banks are. That's one of the things that's always appealed to me about London is the street names are so varied and are tied to some type of historical event or something that took place there long ago. I enjoy looking them up and learning more about that area once I visited a particular place with an interesting street name. I don't know what it is, but it, it definitely makes it a fun thing. It really does, doesn't it? And even I'm going to get this one a bit wrong, but Charing Cross and all those places called Cross. It was because a king went on a pilgrimage there and at every, at every stop he raised up a cross to his dead wife. Now I'm going to get the king wrong because something like Henry I or something like that. But anyhow, a king a long time ago. So all this place like Charing Cross Station is a modern, rushing, you know, metropolis station actually has this really fascinating old legend behind it. King's Cross as well, I suppose. I did not know that. Well, I'm probably mangling history, but there's, <laughs> there's a little element of truth there. Exactly. I love it. So this is a standalone book, but it's featuring Harbinder, who's been in a couple of your earlier books. Yes. So Harbinder was the detective in Stranger Diaries, which it was my first standalone, really. And it's um, a kind of gothic story, but modern day gothic, partly set in a school involving this, this made up Victorian writer um, whose story sort of threads through the story. But at, at one point, uh, a detective has to come in. And, you know, you're never quite sure who, who appears when, when, you know, when the door opens and someone says, I'm the detective in charge. But in this case, the door opened and Harbinder came in. And I thought, oh, you know, she, she's a really fun character to write about. She's um, from a British Indian family, uh, from a Sikh family. She's 34, I think, when we first meet her. She's gay. She's not quite out to her family then. She's still living at home with her parents, who she has a great relationship with. But uh, she's quite sort of sarky and acerbic, and she's fun to write. So I thought, um, wow, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying this. And But what I didn't expect was so many other people seem to like her in The Stranger Diaries. So she pops up again in the postscript murders. And I thought maybe in this book, I would give her a chance to sort of strike out on her own, move away from home, move to the city and have this big case. So I, I quite enjoy the idea of Harbinder, who's, who's from Sussex, which is where I live, moving to, to London, really, to the big city in lots of ways. And I loved Stranger Diaries and you won the Edgar Award for it. Oh, thank you for remembering. Yes, I did. It was the most thrilling day of my life, even though it was deep lockdown here. And there was no one to hear me cheering apart from my cat, but I was so thrilled to win it. Well, I will tell you, as we talked before we started recording, I worked at Murder by the Book for a while here in Houston at the time that that book was going on sale. And I can remember at the front of the store, we have these big shelves and usually the new books coming out or stuff the staff is recommending, whatever is there. And we had both shelves completely full of your book and they were just oh. flying off the shelves. That book was just such a huge hit at the store. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. And as I was saying to you earlier, I, I remember my lovely visit to Murder by the Book quite a few years ago now. I'd love to go back. Just one of those bookshops that just envelops you, isn't it? It was wonderful. Definitely. And with the theme of mystery and crime, I think it's just so wonderful to have all these different mystery writers come through. Yes. So tell me about the inspiration for the story in this one. Well, part of the inspiration was the place, you know, was Bleeding Heart Yard and thinking how I would 
link that in. And I was born in, in London, actually, then, then moved away to Brighton. Uh, but I went to university in London as well and then lived there for 10 years. So I know London quite well. So I'd wanted to write a London book. But the inspiration was really a school reunion. So uh, I went to my old school reunion. Now, I hasten to say my school was nothing like the school in the book. And there are no real dark secrets between my, me and my friends. But it did make me think. So I went to a big comprehensive school, which is the school that you don't have to pay for, basically, in England. Because, you know, it's very confusing in England because public school means the opposite. Public school means private. Exactly. Took me forever to get that right. So yeah, so comprehensive is your equivalent of public, correct? Yes. It's literally the opposite of public, isn't it, in, in the UK? Yeah. So, so it was a big school, very sort of mixed uh, uh, group of people there. So I went to a, to a reunion there. And it was great. I met some of my friends. But also you met people that you didn't remember at all. And you thought, wow, were we really at school together? Was I really here? Were you really there? And I remember there was a, a, um, a boy that, that I met up with, man, obviously now. And he said, oh, he said, I remember you and your friend in French, you put your bag always so I would fall over it just to laugh at me. And of course we didn't. We had no idea that that was his idea of us. Like we were two mean girls, you know, putting our bags so he'd fall over it. But I did think, isn't it interesting that the that all his life really up to this point, hopefully now he stopped thinking that, he thought that that my friend and I were laughing at him for some reason in our French class. So it's the perception that you have of yourself, that your friends have of you, were you a different person at school? And I sort of put myself the question, which is asked in the very first line of Bleeding Out Yard, is it possible to forget that you've committed a murder? Say you'd committed a murder at school, is it possible to forget that and carry on with your life? So that's the kind of main question of the book, really. So you were at your reunion, but there were no murders at your reunion, I'm assuming. Yeah. There were no murders at my reunion, no, but there were certainly some questions and some, you know, reevaluating of how things had happened. And actually, I, the, the building, you know, it was it was just strange to be back there. You know, it is really strange to go back to your old school. When you're living your life, especially as a teenager, you're very focused on what you're doing and your friends and what's happening, and you're not necessarily noticing the other things around you, such as this boy who thought. You were purposely trying to trip him up with the backpack. And when you come back as an older person and you're kind of revisiting everything, it looks so different. And you realize some of my memories are right. Some of them are a little different than the way I remember it. You know, it's, it's just fascinating. It is so fascinating, isn't it? And I started to sort of read up on, on memory when I was writing the book. And there's a really interesting study done, which says that really in order to plant a false memory is very, very easy. Simply, all you have to do is for somebody you trust to tell you that something happened and you start to believe it and they can implant quite disturbing memories. So that was part of it too, the fact that, you know, can you forget something or, or can you misremember it? Can you think that you did something but you didn't? And all that, I mean, memory is, is, is not a static thing, as you were saying. It's active, isn't it? It's changing. I've kept a diary since I was 11 and uh, it's quite, obviously it's quite embarrassing to read back some of it. But some of it is interesting and the things that I put in that I had no idea I was interested in, really. It's not part of my, for example, I thought of myself at school, I suppose, as quite sort of kind of interested in reading, you know, interested in books, not terribly sporty. But I actually kept a tally of my times of, at 100 metres in my diary and I was in, the, I was in the relay team. And it really mattered to me, you know, who was better than me or who had run better. And I'd totally forgotten that side of myself. You know, my family would be amazed to think that I ever used to run anywhere, but I obviously did. <laughs> That's what I feel like. 
I'm like, I don't need to be running. <laughs> no, 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 no. I just, I just a, a brisk walk is good enough for anyone. Exactly. But I think that is the craziest thing. And I will be together with some of my friends from high school and they'll mention something we did or some other person. And I'm like, who? And yes. I think it's just fascinating how some people's memories are better than others, but also how certain things can just kind of be shut off, which is a fair amount of what your book is about too. When traumatic things happen or something horrible happens, how your brain sometimes deals with it. Yes, yes. So you just don't go there. You put it in a sort of Pandora's box and bury it somewhere. Yes. So that, that was, was an idea behind the book too. So it was lots of fun to write and lots, three different points of view. So three different memories all interthreading with each other and cutting through them. Of course, Harbinder trying to get to the bottom of all this. So it, I have to say it was a lot of fun to write. I bet it was. Well, one of my questions for you was whether you plot your books out ahead of time or whether you just start writing and see where it takes you. And it sounds like when you were talking about The Stranger Diaries, that maybe sometimes you see where it takes you. You open the door and see who comes in. But what's that standard process like for you? You know, Cindy, it's a very funny thing because it has changed for me and it changed with The Stranger Diaries. So prior to that, you know, as you know, I'd I'd written quite a few of the, the Ruth Galloway books before then. Um, I had a sort of chapter plan. I, it was nothing terribly complicated. And I've got friends. What I love about this question is every writer is so different and they have such different processes. But, you know, I've got friends who do spreadsheets and things like that. But I would just longhand write down a chapter plan. But I would start at the beginning. I'd go to the end and I'd know what was going to happen. But in The Stranger Diaries, I didn't write anything down. And it's the first time that had happened to me. I had an idea of the plot and, and the setting came to me very sort of clearly. And I thought, I'll see how this goes with not writing it down. And it's actually, I think, up till then was my most complicated plot. Again, told from sort of many different points of view and with with this bit of the past coming in and everything. And I managed to sort of keep it clear in my head. And also, I think it made it, it was able to, I was able to sort of wander off down little alleyways and come back to the centre and be a little looser. So it really worked for The Stranger Diaries. So since then, that's been my process. I haven't actually written anything down. I've got, apart from, you know, odd ideas in my ideas book, but I haven't written a chapter plan. I haven't written any sort of linear plan. I do now let it unfold. And I suppose for me, that's helped keep it fresh, really, because I think Bleeding Heart Yard might be my 30th book. I'm not sure. Now I'm thinking I should have made much more fuss about it being my 30th book if it was. <laughs> Maybe it's only my 29th book. But anyhow, you know, there's been quite a few before that. And now, you know, the process has changed and it's, and it's a little looser. And, and I think it's made me, you know, keep being excited by it. It's kept it fresh for me, really. Okay, so that's so intriguing. So you are doing all of your writing that way now. When you're writing a Ruth story, when you're writing your Magic Men series, when you're writing these standalones, you're not plotting. Yes, exactly. I'm not writing down a, a, a start at the beginning, go to the end plot. You know, there, there might be the odd idea, you know, that I write down or even like a little sketch or something like that. But no, I, that, I'm doing it all like that at the moment. I don't know. It's so funny, isn't it? Because every book is different. I might well go back to doing a, a plot or a timeline or something later on. But at the moment, that really suits me. You know, I finish a chapter and I'll probably write one or two lines of the next chapter. So then I go back to it. I think, oh, that's where, that's where I was going. And that's how it's like, oh, there's a really good quote. I'm trying to remember it. The E.L. Doctorow, he said, um, it's like driving in the dark with your headlights on. You can only see a bit of the road in front, but you can make the whole journey like that. And that's what it's like for me at the moment. I really like that. It's good, isn't it? It is really good. Do you find that you have to edit more? 
Probably a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a little bit of, of more sort of cutting back and thinking, oh, you know, where was I going with that? And, or maybe sometimes, you know, we go off down one of these little alleyways and it doesn't lead anywhere. So I come back. So it's probably a little bit more of that. I think when I was, you know, doing a chapter plan, it was all pretty much, I always used to say, I only do one draft, which isn't quite true. But my first draft was quite finished. But I think now, yes, there is a little bit more editing. You're right. But that's quite fun too. Oh, absolutely. And it's just spending time at different stages. It's no more time. It's just different parts of it are taking up more time, if that makes sense. No, that's absolutely true, actually. A good way to look at it. Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing this one? Right. What surprised me the most? Well, I think I was quite surprised by where I was going with, with Harbinda. She sort of came into, into focus very clearly in London. And I had an idea of how things were going to go in London. So I also really enjoyed writing about her and her colleagues at the police station, uh, which I hadn't really sort of planned on them taking up so much of the book, really. Not that they take up a huge amount of the book, but she's got some new colleagues. And I really liked writing about, you know, uh, her new um, Kim, who is her, her new detective and another slightly annoying sergeant called Jake. So I really enjoyed that bit. But also, I think I was slightly taken surprised by how much I enjoyed writing a uh, unreliable narrator. Because obviously, when you write a long series, like the Ruth series or the Magic Men series, your narrator, your main character is going to be, by definition, quite trustworthy. I mean, people do trust Ruth. But, you know, as much as you can trust anyone, just sort of tell the truth and say what's happening. But in this book, you know, we've got three narrators. We've got Harbinda and we've got two other women, Cassie and Anna. And to an extent, the reader, I don't think, knows how much to trust either of them. And I hadn't realized how much fun that was. That has to be fun because it's going to take you in a different direction and you have to kind of figure out what you're revealing and when. Yes, yes, exactly. And, um, you know, just thinking how the reader is going to feel about them at, at any particular point. Um, so, but I did find that, I did find that very, very interesting because it's a different challenge, isn't it? Writing a series with a character who's now quite well known and probably as well known to your readers as they are to you. So they can't really do anything that's not out of character. Although actually, in reality, in real life, people quite often do things that seem out of character. But I think in almost in a way, a fictional character, a serious character has to be more true to themselves than, than a real life person would be. Because, you know, the readers know them and expect them to behave in a certain way. So with this book, it was great to have totally new people. And nobody quite knew how they were going to react to any given situation. So I did enjoy that. And where it was all going. That was the part that was just so much fun for me because I kept just turning the pages like, where is it going now? Oh, good. I'm so glad about that. Yes. Because, you know, I wasn't quite sure as I was writing <laughs> where it was going. But, but it all became clear in the end. Yes, it did. And you did that well. <laughs> Thank you. Well, stories set at schools, universities, reunions, those seem to be a huge draw for readers. Why do you think that is? Isn't it interesting, really? And I think that sometimes they're called dark academia, aren't they? So I was very thrilled to be mentioned in a New York Times article about dark academia at the weekend. This book, in fact, mentioned, I thought, oh, that's great, part of this thing. Um, and it had a bit of a resurgence during lockdown, didn't it? Definitely. I think we are fascinated by closed societies, closed groups, and school or university is a closed group. And almost... I think also that time of life. So the students in my book are at school. So their last year at school, so they're 18 and they're just taking their A-levels, their sort of final exams that you take over here. So 
it's at you're on the cusp, aren't you? Cusp of adulthood, and a lot of your um, tastes, in a way, become fixed at that time, don't they? I know that a lot of the music that I like comes from the friends I made at university. In fact, you know, who were very into music, and and they had a big influence on me. So a lot of your your tastes, I think, become fixed at that time. So I think it's a really interesting time to write about. It's 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 a closed world, and you're at a very interesting part of your life. So I think all those things play into it, really. And then the reunion side of it, I think a little bit of what we talked about earlier, you come back with some memories or thoughts about how things went, and then inevitably, there's some change when you return. Yes, there's some change. And there's also the surprise, isn't it? Because in this book, two of the class that, that meet up again, and this is, again, it's a comprehensive school, uh, a public school, but not a public school. But, but a lot of them have done very well. Um, not but, because a lot of those schools are very good and they did do very well. But two of the, the classmates have become MPs, but on different sides. One's Labour and one's Conservative. And they talk a bit about how they wouldn't have known which way that would have gone at school. You know, they wouldn't have guessed that. And there are always surprises like that, aren't there? I remember there was um, uh, a school friend of mine who became a lawyer and, you know, was very surprised about that. Um, and, and a really, you know, really successful lawyer. But at school, you wouldn't have guessed that's the way he was going to go. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Having said that, one of my best friends from university is now a high court judge. And you would always have guessed that because she was always brilliant. So that's not a surprise. But you know how it is sometimes another, you know, a, a friend of mine. Um, I remember I was in a pantomime called Aladdin and he played Abanaza and he was quite Who's quite the bad boy that people liked at school. And now he's quite a senior police officer. And you wouldn't have guessed that. It is funny, the paths that people take. We went to my husband's, I think it was his 20 or 25th high school reunion. And one of the guys in his class had grown over a foot since they were out of high school. No one could believe it. I mean, he was like this really short kid in high school. And then he was so much taller, you know, than everybody else almost at the reunion. It was really funny. So it is just kind of funny the things you come back and discover. Isn't that interesting? I think men do keep growing, don't they, into their 20s? So I suppose, whereas I'm pretty sure I haven't grown since I was 11. But oh, that's so interesting. So from being the short kid to being the tall kid is such a such a difference of uh, perspective, isn't it? How interesting. Absolutely. And no one could believe it. It was like the thing that everyone was talking about at the reunion. <laughs> so it was just kind of funny. Yes. Forget the one who's become a, a judge and things like that. Have you seen how tall he is? Yeah. Exactly. Who cares about the actor and the astronaut and all those people? This guy is really tall. <laughs> He's really tall. <laughs> exactly. So you write two series and you write these standalones. You also had a fabulous story included in the Miss Marple compilation where 12 authors came together and each contributed a short story about her. How do you keep all of it straight? Oh, well, I only write one thing at a time. I think I'm not very good at doing things, you know, at the same time. I've got a good friend, a really good writer, William Shaw, who, who lives uh, quite near me here in Brighton. And he sometimes writes one book in the morning, another in the afternoon. And I couldn't do that at all. So I do have to sort of keep one at a time. But actually, again, it was a bit like we were saying about sort of keeping things fresh. It does keep it fresh for me to think that after the next, after this Ruth book, I'm not going to write another Ruth book. I'm going to write something different. You know, I'm going to be in the world of 1960s Brighton in, in the Brighton Mysteries, or I'm going to be with Harbinder and Bleeding Heart Yard, you know. So that does keep it fresh. And, and yes, I mean, goodness, the, the chance to write a story with Miss Marple was so exciting. You know, it was such a, a great thing to be, to be offered the chance to do. Yours was one of my favorite. Yours oh. and Ruth Ware's and Jean Quox were the three that really stood out to me. And I mean, I enjoyed them all, 
But those three were my favorites. And I was like, oh, I've got to remember to tell you that while we're talking today, because I think that book is outstanding. And I've been telling everyone about it. Oh, thank you so much. That really means a lot, actually. It was, I just loved reading all the stories because we didn't read them until we had a proof. So, and we didn't communicate. We didn't have like a WhatsApp group where we talked about it. So it was really great. Like Ruth Ways is set at Christmas. And I was thinking, oh, I'm so glad that somebody wrote about Christmas. That's so brilliant. You know, there's one set in Manhattan, isn't there? And uh, Jean Cox is wonderful with Miss Marple doing Tai Chi. It's incredible. So we had just a few rules that were given to us by the Agatha Christie estate because it was their idea to do this anthology. And the only things we couldn't do, we couldn't write about a young Miss Marple. She had to be the Miss Marple of, of Agatha Christie's books. Uh, she couldn't fall in love, which seemed a bit mean, really. Um, but I guess that would have been the whole story if she'd fallen in love and she couldn't meet Poirot. But with those, with those three aside, we could do anything we liked, really. And there are some great imaginings in there. I love learning that because I was kind of curious what the parameters were. And there were certain things that appeared in a number of the stories and then certain things, you know, that everybody was going in a different direction. And I was curious what they had told you up front. And I think it makes perfect sense that you wouldn't speak to each other because I think it would be very easy to accidentally pull ideas. Yes, yes. And to suddenly think, you know, oh, I can't do that because, but actually you're going to do it differently because you're different writers. The other thing that we were told was there was meant to be some sort of flower or sort of vegetable uh, included in the story. And mine's called uh, Murder at the Villa Rosa, and it's set in, in Italy. And so the rose is the flower. And there's also a sort of subplot about limoncello in mine. And so a few people took that more seriously than others. I loved Rita Say Mitchell's, which had a sort of poisoned apple in hers. And uh, Kate Moss was all to do with the soil and plants growing. So I think some people took the plant line a little bit more seriously than others. But that was the other thing that we were meant to sort of include. But yeah, it was, it was great. It was great to sit and read them because I think they had ordered them in an interesting way. And it sort of went with the seasons. So, you know, kind of started off in spring and then mine is kind of a summer story and then you end up with Ruth's wonderful Christmas story. So it is just a great book, isn't it? Just sit down and read from beginning to end. It really is. And you know, those anthologies are always fun, but usually there's a couple of authors that I really like in them and then a few that I've never heard of and then some that I'm like, okay, but this one was just such an all-star cast of authors. You know, I mean, I just, every time I turned around, I was like, oh, there's someone else, just fabulous. So it's amazing that they were able to pull that together. And then I love, love, love that cover. Oh, it's so beautiful, isn't it? It's really lovely. In fact, it's a little bit like the cover of Bleeding Heart Yard um, in the UK. It's a different cover in the US, that sort of sinuous plant sort of going, going through the cover. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a beautiful book, I have to say. Well, I wanted to ask you about your covers because not only is the Bleeding Heart Yard cover different in the UK and the US, but most of your covers are. So do you have a favorite usually? Do you enjoy seeing how differently your stories are interpreted by the UK cover designer and the US cover designer? I really love that, actually. I really love how different they are. And I, I couldn't say which I prefer, really. I have to say, I really do love the US cover of Bleeding Heart Yard. It shows a sort of one of those, I don't think, I don't think it is Bleeding Heart Yard, which, as I said, is sort of disappointingly sort of boring in daylight. But it's one of those London news streets, a bit like Downing Street, which uh, obviously at the moment is more like an Airbnb with people staying there just for a few nights. Um, but anyhow, it's, you know, it's one of those sort of slightly sinister muses in London and the, the words Bleeding Heart Yard are sort of in handwriting across it. So I have to say I really like that. And I love the way that um, the US designers, uh, the designer of the, that's been the same designer of the 
Ruth Brooks, as a wonderful woman called Martha, has just done. She's taken quite an artistic um, line with them. It's not just photographic. You know, it's really a, a piece of artwork. And I've abs- I absolutely love that. It's really fascinating to see the different covers around the world, you know, because the books are published in quite a few different places. And lots of people take the sort of landscapey approach, but the US covers are really very different. They're almost cartoony. And they're very good, I think, with really lovely, bright, zingy colours, which I also love. So it's very interesting. I, I love book covers. You know, I think it's such an art. And when I was an editor, you kind of dreaded the author having an opinion and coming in and saying, well, I think the worst thing was, you know, you do a lovely cover and they'd say, well, actually, that's not the car in the book. It's this car. And you think, oh, is that going to stop one person buying it? No, it isn't. But you have to sort of say, oh, OK, well, we'll try and make it the right car. <laughs> but I think designers, book designers are so clever and they really, really is an art in itself. And authors should probably just sit back and say, oh, that's great. I love book covers. And I think that so much goes into them. And there's so many different little details that until you start talking about it, or sometimes even once you've read the book, you can look back at the cover and kind of piecemeal together some of the things that you wouldn't have noticed initially. But I think it's just so fabulous to look at covers, talk about them and see what goes into them. And isn't it clever as well, with particularly with sort of mysteries and crime, you can tell from the cover, can't you? You know, for example, how much violence is in the book or what sort of mystery it is. You can just tell that from the cover, which I think is very, very clever. I think so, too. Well, when you began writing after you'd been an editor, I'm assuming that your role as an editor really informed your writing. Is that right? <laughs> you'd think, wouldn't you? Uh, I, I, think, <laughs> I think you'd think it would be more helpful than it was, really. Um, I always wanted to be a writer, always wanted to be a writer, you know, from when I was at school and it would definitely be what I what I'd said I wanted to do if you'd asked me at any time, sort of, you know, at high school. And I, I read English at university, partly because I thought that was a good way, you know, of, of getting to be a writer and went into publishing again because I thought it was a good thing for somebody who wanted to be a writer to do. But actually being in publishing did sort of stop me writing. It's very strange. I think it's because you know, I absolutely loved, you know, being in publishing. And as I said, I, I've got, had some great colleagues and friends there. But you're using your creat- creativity in a different way. You're using it as an editor. And I think it sort of used up all the, all the creativity I had. So I didn't write uh, what became my first published book until I was on maternity leave expecting my twins, who are now 24. So that's quite a long time ago. So really, it wasn't until I had a little break from publishing that I was able to get my sort of writing head on again, you know, my sort of writing muscle going. And then, um, as I think you know, my first four books were published under my own name, which is Domenica de Rosa, which sounds made up, but is my real name. And they were kind of romances, sort of women's fiction, I guess you might say. So it wasn't until my fifth book that I, I hit on, on a crime novel and uh, became Ellie Griffiths. I knew you had written under another name, but I didn't realize that Ellie was the pseudonym I thought the other name was. Isn't it funny? Because it, it absolutely seems like that, doesn't it? So my real name is Domenica de Rosa. It's my, my dad was Italian, my half Italian. And my pseudonym is Ellie Griffiths, which it does sound. And I think one of the reasons my, my then agent said to me sort of quite straight, you know, she said, uh, Domenica de Rosa, it sounds romantic and it does sound made up, which, which is quite strange because it is my real name. I know that is so funny, but it's like you were talking earlier. I think truth is stranger than fiction all the time. You're talking about characters and people not wanting them to deviate like real humans would. But I think sometimes when you read, especially historical fiction, 
and there'll be things included in there. And I'm like, oh, there's no way that happened. And you get to the author's note and they're like, okay, these things happened. And it's always the really weird things. And these things I made up and it's the more normal things. And so, yes, I, I think you're right. I mean, truth is stranger than fiction, but people don't believe it. Also coincidence, don't you think? Because yeah. so many coincidences happen in real life. So many of them, you know, in fact, you know, I was talking about the boy with the bag, fell over the bag at the school. The other day, like a couple of weekends ago, I was at a local bookshop just doing a signing in what his grandchildren. So do we, were you at school with, with my granddad? Oh, wow. Obviously, he's a young grandfather. But, but in a book, you would never write that coincidence, would you? Because it would have to be significant in some way. But coincidences like that happen in real life all the time. They totally do. I just finished reading a book and I got to the end and I was like, mm. and then I really thought about it overnight. And I thought what you're saying, those type of things happen in real life all the time and no one thinks twice about it. And that's what happened in the book as well. And for a minute, I was like, would that have really happened? And then I thought about it and I was like, it probably really would have happened or could have happened. It's Yes, it's very interesting. I think you're entirely right in that real life is often so much stranger. The other thing is that uh, writers always have to Think of a good motive, don't they? Uh, mystery writers I'm talking about. You know, you have a, a crime and you've got to find out who did it and why. And that's quite satisfying. But um, in real life, quite often, you know, a murderer will say, I don't know why. And I went to a talk um, recently by a really interesting British murder detective, the real life person behind the sort of Manhunter series. And he said, motive comes at the end. I thought, wow, I've got to put that in a book. But, you know, it's it, in real life, motive isn't clear, is it yet? You're right. If you wrote that in a crime novel, you know, if I'd finished a book and said, yeah, so-and-so did it. Don't know why, really. <laughs> no, you'd think, whoa, come on, Ellie, get a grip. Everybody would be up in arms. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we wrap up, and now I feel like I have to say Ellie, or is it Dominica? Is that how you Dominica, say it? Yeah, yeah, Dom. Yeah, any, either of those is fine, yeah. So I feel like I have to say Ellie slash Dom. <laughs> what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, right. Well, well, we were talking about her earlier, Ruth Ware, and she her latest book is called The It Girl. And it's a really great crime novel. It's set in, in Oxford, University of Oxford. Again, it's another dark academia book, actually. I thought about it a lot while I was reading yours because I really enjoyed it as well. And I thought it's interesting that there are a variety of these stories being set like that. It's true, and it it's, was a very it's a it's a really interesting premise of the fact that uh, this girl's uh, roommate died when they were both at university, and they thought they knew who did it, but now they're having doubts. So yeah, so there are some quite similar themes in it. But I absolutely loved the story, and I think Ruth is very very clever, and no wonder her Miss Marple story works so well because I think she is quite Agatha Christie like, and. A couple of the clues I, I um, texted her after I'd read the book. Said, I can't believe I fell for this, you know, red herring that you put there because it's so you, but I absolutely fell for it. So that's the It Girl by Ruth Ware. Another book I've really enjoyed recently was um, The Last Party by Claire McIntosh. Claire had a big hit with her first book, which is, I'm going to forget the title. No, I Let You Go, I Let You Go which is a heart-wrenchingly brilliant book. Um, but this is the start of a series and it's called The Last Party. And it's, it's set in Wales where Claire lives. And it's, it's a, a sort of a state of, of grand new houses around a lake. And there's a, um, a New Year's Eve party. And uh, one of the, the local celebrity, a local opera singer is killed. And it's really good. And it's, it seems to be, I think the main character is great. And I'm going to enjoy following her. So that's another recommendation. The Last Party. I loved that book. I loved her last book as well, Hostage. 
But I really like this one because of the Welsh setting. Like, I've never been to Wales. I didn't know that much about it. I loved the main character, really the two main police detectives and the way they interacted with each other. I just thought it was so well done. I'm actually interviewing her tomorrow. Oh, fantastic. Well, give her my love. And I thought that the, the initial connection between the two main characters is so clever. And so well done. And uh, I loved also the bits that were in, in Welsh language and the way she talked about the Welsh language. And I don't think Claire is Welsh, but I know she lives in Wales and she's learned Welsh, which is a very difficult language. So I love that. I thought that gave the whole thing a, a nice little extra edge, really. Exactly. What we were talking about earlier with Ruth Galloway's job, you know, something different that I hadn't seen in a thriller. I loved the Welsh culture, the language, learning a little bit about it. And you're right, the way the two people met I've told so many people that already. I'm like, it is hilarious the way they come together and end up having to work together. It really is. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. This was just delightful. Oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.